You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Happy 2019, everybody. CNA Newsroom is back. Did you miss us? This is a podcast that breaks down great stories and the Catholic news that matters each week. I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. So there's this thing that used to happen sometimes with TV. Some of you are probably too young to have experienced it. But you'd be watching your favorite show after school and something weird would happen. You'd turn on your show, Saved by the Bell or Family Matters, and you'd get cheated. You'd get an episode that was just a bunch of jokes from old episodes, usually strung together with some cheesy dialogue. It was not a plot at all. It was called a clip show. Sometimes you'd get a New Year's clip show. It was just a cheesy way to make an episode out of some old pre-existing material. It was lame. You'd turn off the TV and read a book or go outside or something. Guys, this is not a clip show. We've only had six episodes. We couldn't have a clip show. But this is a retrospective. Today, I'm going to talk to three CNA reporters about some of the work they did in 2018. You might have missed the stories we're going to talk about, so stay tuned. This is a good episode. First, we'll talk with Mary Rezach about a Catholic 22-year-old who is doing some incredible work in Uganda. Then, Perry West gives a recap of some of the Catholic events around the U.S. that he covered last year. And finally, we'll have a new voice on the podcast. Kevin Jones is a longtime investigative journalist at CNA, and he'll talk with me about some of his most important work from 2018. This is not a clip show. But before we get to it, here are some of this week's top stories. Pope Francis accepted the resignations this week of the director and vice director of the Vatican Press Office. The resignations followed a series of new appointments in the Vatican's communications department. A recently published letter from a Vatican official states that a vote by U.S. bishops in November on proposals to address the sex abuse crisis was blocked because the Vatican needed more time to discuss those proposals. The letter was written in mid-November. It was obtained by the Associated Press January 1st. And finally, U.S. bishops are on retreat this week in Chicago. The retreat was suggested by the Pope, who encouraged bishops to pray together as they address the sex abuse crisis in the United States. You can find all of these stories and more on catholicnewsagency.com. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Bike. Welcome back to the podcast. Right now I'm joined by CNA writer Mary Rezach, who is going to talk to us about um, a, a really interesting story, a young girl from Texas doing something very important in Uganda. Rana Evitz is 22 years old, and she is the founder of a boarding school for deaf children in Uganda. That's a pretty unusual job for a 22-year-old. Mary, how did you find Rana? And tell us more about her story. So Rana is from a small town in Texas. And um, in her childhood, she went through some trauma. She was a teenager, and she was you know, really struggling to process all of this. That, that drew her to seek out God. So she um, started going to different Christian churches of all different denominations. And um, and this is while she's in high school. Yeah, she's in high school. I think she's like a sophomore or junior at the time and just kind of bouncing around to different churches. And she ends up in a Catholic church. And um, something about it just pulled on her heart. And she ends up having this, this really big conversion in high school. So from there, it was very shortly after she graduated from high school that she actually went, she didn't go to college. Instead, she went to Uganda and began teaching sign language to deaf children in a school. So it's really kind of crazy how it all came together. So her senior year of high school, um, she has, um, they have language 
class requirements, of course. And she said the only options were sign language and like one other thing, I think Spanish. And um, she didn't particularly have a passion for sign language or didn't necessarily know that many deaf people or anything. She just took it because it was a required class. And um, through that class, she ended up doing a project on deaf kids in Uganda. And something else you need to know about Rana for this story is um, ever since she was a little girl, she just was always obsessed with Africa. She said she doesn't she doesn't know why, she doesn't know where it came from, but she said um, for as long as she can remember, she would talk about Africa. She would tell her mom that one day she was going to Africa. I myself miss the rains down in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Do you, do you bless them? <laughs> oh, yeah. Is that how it goes? I don't know. So anyway. So, um, so she found out that um, in Uganda, deaf kids are really treated poorly. They're kind of exiled. They are seen as... Um, cursed or stupid Um, a lot of people there just haven't ever seen someone speaking sign language and so they think that because their child is deaf that they're also dumb because they they just don't know how to communicate with them so she was really moved by this project and pretty shortly after she graduated high school decides to um, go down to Uganda and she volunteered for about a year in there's a really big established school for the deaf in um, the capital city down there But then she realized that in the northern part of the country, which is more remote, there weren't any resources for these deaf kids. She visits a parish up north, and she just kind of walks back into the sacristy and is like, hey, Father, can I talk to you? And and that's where it all began. And she pitches him to start uh, a school, a boarding school for deaf children, many of whom have been abused. And then a year later, it opens. Yeah, so they they start conversations um, with the priest, with the local bishop, and yeah, about a year, year and a half later, the bishop calls her in. He's like, okay, start. And they give her like one building that was already on the church's property. And um, she starts kind of giving talks in the parishes. And she said um, something kind of funny that works in her favor is not only is she a white person, but she has red hair and a lot of freckles. And so she's like this source of complete fascination for a lot of people in Uganda who have never seen anyone who looks like oh, her. Sure, so yeah, she said uh-huh. she kind of used that attention to her advantage um, and would be like, oh, well, by the way, I'm here to start this school for the deaf. Oh, so. interesting. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Yeah. So um, one thing that I found very interesting in your story is that you talk about when the students would go home from the school, it wasn't just the impact that the school has had on the students' lives, but on their families' lives, that families were themselves beginning to learn some sign language and for the first time communicating with their own children in a meaningful way. Yeah, it's really, it was amazing to hear Rana talk about it because the parents would look at their kids' papers and they would be like, oh my gosh, like there's writing on there and like they, they can communicate and and there's grades and, and they're learning. And um, so yeah, she's really, she's doing a lot to kind of break that stereotype down there that deaf people are um, somehow unintelligent or unable to learn or anything yeah, like that. That's so. that's so incredible. And and to think, I mean, I just am struck by it. And I'm I'm old, so like I hear like a 22-year-old person is doing something and that sounds just unbelievable because I wasn't doing very much at all when I was 22 and I can't even fathom kind of beginning these things. What do you, I mean, Mary, your, your job is to talk with interesting people and to share their stories. What, what do you take away from this one, from Rana's story? I mean, I think there's a lot to take away from it. It's just so inspiring to hear these stories of people doing something so incredible for God, um, overcoming their own, you know, her own personal darkness and challenges and, and just kind of doing it. I think a lot of the time, we might have an idea or an inclination of like, you know, these are my gifts and I feel called to use them somehow, but I'm not sure. And I think Rana, Rana's story just kind of shows us like, if you just show up and ask, like there's a lot that God can do 
with your very simple yes. I think a lot of the time we think it's going to be more complicated and that we have to have everything set up perfectly before we begin. And, and Rana just kind of went in there and did it. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. So Mary, um, what's the story that you're looking forward to writing in the new year? There's a couple of uh, women, Catholic women, who have started these fashion blogs. And I just think it's really interesting and really cool to see someone talk about fashion from a Catholic perspective. Like, I think a lot of the time fashion gets dismissed as something that's shallow or superfluous or, oh, like only women are interested in it or something like that. But I think that's that's really overly dismissive of something that can be a really beautiful and expressive art form. Um, so that's something that I would really yeah, like to Yeah, that would look be a cool into. story. You, sh- you should pitch that. I actually already have pitched it, but oh. <laughs> it kind of well, got pushed to the back burner oh, well, for a while. Thank so. you for <laughs> so this is a repitch. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> well, Mary, that story sounds interesting. Uh, Rana's story, like so many stories that you told in 2018, were um, were the stories of of people who are um, responding to God's call in their life. Thank you for telling those stories, and we look forward to um, the the fashion story, which you have pitched again, and to other stories that you will tell in 2019. Sounds good. Thanks, Thanks. for having me. With me is my colleague, CNA reporter Perry West. And Perry, you were on kind of something like a festival circuit in that you covered a number of sort of Catholic large festival-like events. And the first one was One Life LA back in January. What what was One Life LA? Uh, so One Life LA is basically the March for Life on the West Coast. It kind of combines like a festival with the March for Life. But One Life LA doesn't sort of bill itself as a traditional kind of march for life. It, it builds itself more as a celebration of life, a festival of life. And how is that, man? you were there, how is that manifested in, in the way the day takes place? Yeah, no, very much so. Um, I think through the, the different speakers who share with the, their lives, their missions. One of the speakers was Karen, uh, and she... Uh, Karen Gaffney, is that right? Yeah, Karen Gaffney. And she has a, a Down syndrome. She's also swam the San Francisco Bay, the English Channel, um, which as a swimmer myself, just being able to see her or hear about how she can do that is just incredible to me. I know I am different than you. I look differently. I talk differently. I walk differently. I don't hear as well as most of you do. And I don't see as well either. And sometimes it takes me longer to learn things. Now another thing that is different about me is that I can swim much longer and much farther than anyone here. So let me ask you this, Perry. So One Life LA, you know, builds itself as a celebration of life, which you just said. And the idea, I think, is um, that it'll be more, rather than the environment of a protest, more the environment of a, a celebration of human dignity. Does that celebration atmosphere, did it resonate? Were there very many young people there? Did it feel like a festive event, a, a, an affirmation of life? Yeah, oh, very much so. There was, uh, I mean, there's tons of students, families. Some of my favorite people, too, uh, that I interviewed were some of the religious Specifically, I remember one was uh, Sister Isabella. She kind of talked about the pro-life on the on the grand scale of everything. Obviously, you know, uh, taking care of uh, the babies in the womb, but also just the sick, the homeless, the elderly. She was kind of talking about so much of that celebration of love and concern for the person, and that was that was felt honestly throughout the whole entire community. And it, it didn't feel like so much of boo the other side, but just so much more of like this is something worth celebrating. So that's that's something that I have seen more and more in 
in, in pro-life circles is the idea that if we're going to talk about a culture of life, we need to actually have the cultural element of it, the aspect of being a people who are able to like engage in events that affirm human dignity and affirm the, the solidarity and interrelationality of people. You have covered some other events this year that I think are oriented towards those same things. One of them was um, the Prairie Troubadour Festival uh, in in Kansas. Can you tell us about Prairie Troubadour? It, it, it was kind of like a, essentially a seminar. They're based on kind of like the human ecology or healthy human ecology. From Lodato C. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So it was like things like good food, incredible, inspiring music, true speakers. And they kind of included it all together to promote, like I said, a healthy human ecology uh, in opposition to the constant chase of, of pleasure through, through technology. You know, just being able to enjoy life well and beautifully and uh, with and community and kind of just, you know, enjoying the things that inspire to truth, beauty, and goodness. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was cool in your story about it was that not only were there speakers there, but musicians. And then uh, the story talked about kind of instruments being handed out and, and sort of an informal jam session with the people who were there. So kind of like whiskey, cigars, and good music, which is so much of kind of a Catholic cultural ethos, at least I hope. Um, yeah. So to me, again, that seemed reflective of something similar to what you what you saw at One Life LA. Yeah, I, I would say so, that there was um, the desire to be with one another and to enjoy. Like I said, kind of with like, and similar to One Life LA, there was just tons of food trucks aligned and people were just sitting on the grass, you know, moving from one group to another. In the same way, uh, you know, the kind of symposium with people just going, changing instruments, just going up on stage, playing music, and kind of just all... Uh, very communal, but all very much based in something to enjoy together. And then you covered a kind of a deepening of that, something that, that moved from that that horizontal dimension of a deep sort of Christian community into something with a vertical dimension, a dimension of prayer, which was this event in Kansas that I just think is so cool, this w- event in, in Wichita, Kansas, Adoration Under the Stars. So the name's probably self-explanatory, so I feel dumb asking this question, but what was a- Adoration Under the Stars? Yeah, so um, Adoration Under the Stars uh, was an initiative from uh, the Wichita Adore Ministries, bringing people to praise God in nature, kind of combining two great and beautiful aspects together. So, you know, obviously the uh, the Eucharist, all the beauty of, of Christ exposed, and then also, uh, you know, the grandeur of, of the stars and of God's creation. Perry, I am noticing more and more in the stories that you covered and uh, and, and stories that we haven't covered, but just this uh, emerging trend of kind of uh, a really intentional effort to create environments and occasions in which Catholic culture is more than just coming together for a sacramental experience or for a catechetical lesson, but for something, uh, a thicker cultural experience. Do you see that, and, and why do you think that's something that's becoming so attractive and so important right now? I came into the church uh, essentially just through a family who invited me to their home, and we just played music and uh, cool. drank wine and that was like that was it that was that was the simplest thing but I was involved with with good things and I think Catholics are starting you know more and more to see that to be able to worship God obviously in the sacraments but there's also going and taking that and being within the community and, and receiving that community within good things so what advice would you have for Catholics who who want to kind of foster that greater kind of appreciation of good things and a deeper sense of community among themselves. Maybe they don't even really know a lot of other Catholics with whom to to have that kind of fellowship. Where should they get started? You know, obviously taking a look around in their church. Uh, You know, I mean, Bible studies, of course, but book studies, you know, things that are reading, you know, maybe things like classical literature uh, or, you know, even in the simple way of just finding good music 
uh, and going with a group of people and kind of being able to discuss and like what's the deeper meaning of it? What's the what's the beauty in it? How does that connect to uh, you know a spiritual truth beyond just a the, the physical pleasure and enjoyment. So I would say, you know, just kind of starting with uh, the smallest ways as a community that you're with, uh, your friends, whether, whether it be Catholic or not Catholic, just seeing, uh, you know, things that do have uh, kind of that duality of physical pleasure, but also the, uh, the spiritual goodness to it. Perry West writes about Catholic culture because he's real classy. You can find his stuff at <laughs> catholicnewsagency.com. Perry also has an album on iTunes, Perry West, you can find it. Perry, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> With me now is Kevin Jones. Kevin is really a leading investigative reporter here at CNA and has been for a long time. And Kevin, you've especially focused a lot of your investigative work on researching uh, the financial records, tax records, grant records, and grant proposals of large, influential um, grant-making groups. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that's right, J.D. And so this year you wrote about um, some groups who have spent a, a fair amount of money on uh, funds related to questions of religious freedom. Can you talk a little bit about your stories in October that, that dealt with these questions? What we find going on now is that for, for decades— very powerful lobbying groups that we all know have uh, lobbied to try and change laws and skew laws in ways they think either are positive, either out of some deep felt philosophical principle, or because they stand to benefit financially. And we also find in uh, recent years that religious freedom is now become a very contentious issue. After the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in the early 90s passed almost unanimously, it seemed that this was just a bedrock principle that doesn't need defending anymore. But in recent years, we see the rise of people depicting religious folks as discriminatory. And this is part of the network we have found. And my research has found about $10 million uh, targeting broad and effective religious freedom protections that we might have once thought unchallengeable. So you, you first of all, you just, I mean, you, you said that these are kind of large interest groups, large funding groups that we all know. But I think for a lot of people, th these kinds of groups may exist in the background and, and, and they may not be aware of them. So what are these groups and who, who are the people who fund them? Well, one of the bigger groups is a man named Tim Gill. He has been a very influential donor out here in uh, CNA's Denver home state of Colorado. And he decided to uh, engage in strategic political donations to uh, advance his views on LGBT advocacy. He has also helped fund a lot of non-governmental organizations and charities to advance the causes as he sees things. One of his uh, friends and allies, uh, John Stryker, runs a group called the Arcus Foundation. Uh, he inherited about a billion dollars in his family fortune, and he has poured that into philanthropies that he agrees with, uh, one of which happens to be great apes, of all things. Mm -hmm. And the other side is LGBT advocacy. He is seeking to create social change first to create pro-LGBT advocates within religions, and second to challenge views of religious freedom that he considers to be discriminatory. Donors like Tim Gill and John Stryker have gathered together in a funding collaborative based out of the Proteus Fund. They engage in strategic grant making. They double check to make sure that their money is being well used. They uh, rethink and adapt in the face of present and future challenges. 
And one of the challenges in recent years is the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision. And what we found earlier this year is that one of these foundations and part of this collaborative spent over half a million dollars on advocacy and public relation campaigns related to the Masterpiece Supreme Court decision. They feared that this decision would uh, enshrine a view of religious freedom that they disagree with. Mm. So, Kevin, when you say that religious freedom has been a target of these kind of large funding groups, what does that mean? What are they trying to accomplish? Well, from their point of view, they are trying to combat discrimination on the basis of LGBT uh, identity. They have also aligned with groups who consider themselves in favor of reproductive rights, uh, abortion advocates particularly. And how do, in your work, um, I, I, I know this uh, because I'm your boss, so I have to know it, but for our listeners, how, how does your work work? How do you research the activities of these kinds of groups? Well, some of the groups in the past have made it very easy. They actually list all their grants on their website. Mm. So it's a simple matter of doing the math, uh, mapping the network, and uh, checking the, uh, the foundation's goals of the grants and checking out the goals of their grantees, which uh, sometimes align perfectly and sometimes look a little suspicious. And, and so what does that convey to you? What does that indicate to you? Um, that conveys that, in part, a lot, of our, uh, a lot of our instincts do have to assume the best of people who take grants, that you still have to argue philosophically. Uh, at the same time, you also have to be as uh, wise as a serpent <laughs> and, and think how all of our friends working for these NGOs and political lobby groups might uh, function as part of a broader strategic plan that they don't have much influence over. And how, how should Catholics, you talk about that, this, and, you, and you demonstrate it, I mean, your work demonstrates these kind of broader strategic networks of intending to fund particular judicial or legislative initiatives or to do PR surrounding kind of judicial decisions. How, how should Catholics take account of that in the voting booth as they read the newspaper? What, what do you think is the thing that um, you hope Catholics will take away from the kind of research work that you do? I think one of the things you have to learn is that voting is not necessarily enough. Mm-hmm. If, a, uh, if a deeply influential strategic funding network wants your religious freedom restricted, um, there's a very good chance they will get what they want. Mm. Uh, the Proteus Fund uh, previously hosted a, uh, a collaborative to uh, ensure that same-sex marriage was recognized in all 50 states. Mm. And they spent uh, about a decade on that and, uh, and obviously over $100 million. Dollars. And yeah. yes, yes, yeah. and that, w- that proved a very successful initiative. I think savviness is what we need. People talk like the culture is going downhill. They've, there's this rhetoric of decline for generations, but nobody seems to do anything about sure. it. We have a few very dedicated volunteers, a few paid professionals, but the kind of strategic work necessary and the kind of leadership yet necessary seems to have trouble emerging. Mm. So I would encourage Catholics to think how they can turn local grassroots leaders, local community leaders into paid community leaders, how they can uh, ensure that your professional leadership uh, can build into a broader network capable of responding. Thank you, Kevin. That's really insightful and I think important for our listeners to to think about and to understand. Kevin Jones is digging into the money, the power, and the influence networks behind the politics, and he'll keep at it. Kevin, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, J.D. All right, we'll be back. That is our podcast for today. So listen, as we focus on CNA Newsroom for 2019, 
we want to make sure that it is informative and enjoyable and useful to you, our listeners. So write to us or send us a text or tweet at us and tell us what you want to hear about on the podcast. We're grateful for the feedback that we've already gotten. We hope you're enjoying this and we hope you'll keep listening. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Special thanks this week to our team and all the hard work they put into their stories in 2018. Adios. Adios.